So this is the first uh, trip we've made <laughs> for over a year <laughs> since we were at um, the House of Prayer in Wellington. <laughs> wow. And we entered into a walk in the wilderness. <laughs> Which is the one I share? I wonder what I... <laughs> I do. I'd like to share some of that. Because <laughs> one thing that we learned <laughs> is that <laughs> some of these songs you sing, you know, they're true. <laughs> and there's this song, you know, the one that goes, because your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. <laughs> well, it doesn't. It doesn't. And it never has. Oh. And I came to realise, you know, <laughs> oh, that uh, the poem called The Hound of Heaven <laughs> actually describes reality. Anybody heard of that poem? <laughs> the Hound of Heaven? Well, it was written in 1893, so <laughs> you, you might not have picked it up lately. Yeah. And it's a strange name. And uh, Mr. O'Connor, SJ, wrote this about it. <laughs> the name is strange. It startles one at first. It's so bold, so new, so fearless. It does not attract, rather the reverse. But when one reads the poem, the strangeness disappears. The meaning is understood. The hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase. With unhurrying and imperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. Wow. And though in sin or in human love, away from God it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, unwearyingly follows ever after, till the soul feels its pressure, engaging and, and uh, drawing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. So he sees the hound of heaven and he never gives up. He's totally committed to every human being on the planet. Every single human being on the planet. He's uh, after, by grace, to draw them uh, through faith to him. He's been hounding me for 30 odd years now. Wow. Never given up on me. I'm so glad. He started uh, when I was um, eight years old. Eight years old. Eight years old, uh, we'd come back from England to Perth. Mum and Dad, Dad had a job in Perth. And uh, it was near Christmas time. And mum took me to church, the Anglican church in Scarborough. The first and only time mum ever took me to church was that day. And on that day, it was Sunday school prize giving day. And all the Sunday school kids were lined up the front receiving their prizes. Most of them were little blue Bibles, King James Version, Old and New Testament, and there was one left. 
And the minister pointed at me and said, you're new here. Here's one for you. And that was the beginning. I carried that Bible for 40 years. That little blue Bible. Wow. Then we moved from there to Bayswater, still eight years old. No friends and didn't know anybody. And I used to go outside at night and swing on the swing that was hanging from the jacaranda tree in the backyard. And I would sing and swing and swing and sing to the sky at night, full of stars. And I was out there singing and swinging one night and the stars came down and looked me in the face, right up close. was him not alone somebody is here was him when I was 15 I went on a camping trip with two mates from school down at Point Perrin down the end there where the old gun emplacements are and we're walking back at night with the stars in the sky the three of us in the dark and got to talking about God. Why would three 15-year-olds talk about God? Beats me. Is there a God? Where is God? And guess what? The stars came down and looked us in the face. All three of us. And we stood. And we looked at one another. And we looked away. And we looked up. And we looked back again. And we never said a word, but we knew. My friend Eric died in India five years later, trying to find God in India. My friend Bernie, whose 70th birthday we celebrated a couple of months ago, became a humanist and an agnostic bordering on atheism. But he got me. He got me. Wouldn't let me go. So when I was 29, sitting in my lounge room in Perth, waiting for my father-in-law to die of cancer, I pulled my little blue Bible off the shelf and looked at it and looked in it and said... God, where are you? Because I couldn't find him in the pages of the King James Bible that I'd carried for 40 years. So I threw it across the room and there he was, standing in front of me. Here I am. Broke my heart. So I don't know how long I was on the floor, <laughs> crying, weeping. But when I looked up, he was still there. And he turned around and did that. 
and went. Two years later, I was at St Barnabas College in Adelaide training for the Anglican ministry. That's how long it took to get the house in order, resign the job and sort things out and get to go. Get to go. But you see, the story never ends. It's not a one-off thing. Huh? It keeps on happening. Because we keep on <laughs> needing to be found. We keep on getting lost. <laughs> we keep on losing our way. We forget. But he doesn't. Never does. Never forgets. Never gives up. <clears throat> Now in 2000 and something or other, 15 I think it might have been, we were in Israel and we're standing in the village of Capernaum. Anybody been to Capernaum? There you go, yeah. You know the black um, basalt building blocks there? You know the ruin of the synagogue that's there? Yeah. Out on the front driveway... You've got some big limestone blocks or whatever they are, yeah? <coughs> Sandstone? Yeah. Well, in Capernaum, they've got volcanic rock, black basalt, and they make blocks like that and they build houses with them. It's a bit like Lego, you know, they stack them all on top of one another. Yeah? <coughs> and came to realise while we were there, that's where Jesus was standing when he told the parable about the hound of heaven. You read that parable? It's in the Bible. It's in Luke 15. He's standing there and as usual, right, he's surrounded by tax collectors and sinners and fishermen and prostitutes and all the riffraff of the village, yeah? And alongside would be the Pharisees standing on the steps of the synagogue in their robes with their prayer shawls over their, over their head hoping not to get contaminated by this lot encroaching upon them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they said to one another, this man, Jesus, <laughs> welcomes sinners and eats with them couldn't get over it. What on earth is this about? <laughs> and Jesus said, uh, you accuse me of eating with sinners. And he had some more to say. You're absolutely right. <laughs> That's exactly what I do. <laughs> but he had some more to say. As a matter of fact, not only do I eat with sinners, <laughs> I run down the road to find them. I shower them with kisses and I drag them home so that I can eat with them. He says to them, in fact, it's much worse than you ever imagined. <laughs> Let me tell you a story about it. And he told this parable about the hound of heaven. We've broken it up into three. 
We call it the parable of the lost sheep or the parable of the good shepherd, the parable of the lost coin or the parable of the good woman and the parable of the prodigal son or the loving father or the two sons or whatever. It's all one parable. <laughs> it's all about the hound of heaven who never gives up, never gives up. In every one of these stories, something is lost and someone tries to find it. In the first parable, you know, it's the sheep that's lost. Why would you bother about one sheep when you've got 99 left? I mean, come on. We're out in the Judean wilderness. It's all full of um, limestone rocks and boulders and salt bush and thorn bushes and there's hardly any grass out there. Why would you bother going looking for one sheep that's got lost when you've got 99 to take home? Eh? Well, he did. And you know, you know what crazy animals sheep are, do you? Yeah? yeah? You ever, you ever seen them when, when they don't know what they're doing? They're, mostly they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> they run backwards and forwards and up and down and round and round. And if they don't know where they're going or what they're doing, they exhaust themselves. And they terrify themselves. And so this one sheep that got lost, it would have crawled up under a thorn bush somewhere, right? Shaking with exhaustion. Yeah? Um, ready to die from dehydration, or about to be eaten by wild animals, yeah? So this, this shepherd, who's been scouring the Judean wilderness for this one sheep, yeah, finds it under the thorn bush. Now, is it going to stand up? <laughs> Not on your life. Not on your life. So what does he do? He picks up this sheep, yeah, probably weighs about 30 kilos or more and puts them on his shoulders and staggers off through the Judean wilderness back to the village from where he came. When he gets there, he calls the neighbours and they have a great feast. Yeah, not to celebrate the fact that he found the, uh, that the sheep survived. Hey, roast lamb, absolutely. Everyone in the village is invited. <laughs> the feast is to celebrate his prowess, you see, at finding the lost sheep. <laughs> How good am I? Yeah, why not? Brilliant. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The next parable, a part of the parable, is even stranger because it's about a woman. Now, you, you don't hear much about uh, women in the Old Testament, yeah, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, yeah, but Jesus is always having to do with women. This is pretty special. Now, we've got this, this woman who's in her house, yeah, with ten silver coins. That's a week's wages, right? You've got ten drachmas, and she drops one. Oh, crikey, she drops one. Now, for you and me, that doesn't seem like a problem. 
but she's in a Capernaum house built with basalt blocks. It's about 15 metres high. Yeah? It's about the size of a one-car garage and it's got no windows. Got no windows. The second row of blocks from the roof, they leave apart slightly. So there's a, there's a gap. That's mainly to let the smoke out, right? not necessarily to let the light in, but there you go. So what does she do? She lights the lamp, as you would, and she scours, she scours the floor of that one-car garage looking for one, one coin. One coin. Huh? We spent half the night last night looking for one earring. The earring comes out, yes, and it drops. And you can hear it on the wooden floor. Ding, 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 ding. Huh? Shouldn't be hard to find. <laughs> How do they manage to hide themselves away yeah, in a place where you would never look for them? We found it this morning by accident. <laughs> there you go. But this woman... She found that coin that she lost, not by accident. She scoured the place until she found it. And she did. One out of ten. Not one out of a hundred. One out of ten was worth finding. Yes? So she had a buddy because she was a good enough woman, right? A good enough housewife to find a coin that was lost and didn't have to face her husband when he got home saying, I've lost a day's wages. Celebration at the effort that was put in to find this one lost coin. Now comes the punchline, does it not? Because now we're moving from a sheep, yeah, one of a hundred, to a coin, one of ten, to a brother, to a son, one of two. That's right. Now, in fact, there are two lost sons. We find that out at the end of the story. Yeah? But in the beginning, <laughs> we're only dealing with one lost son who's decided he wants to do life on his own. Anybody here ever decided to do life on their own? Yeah? No one. Oh, one or two or three. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah? Well, <clears throat> this son had a problem. <laughs> and the problem was he was a labourer on his dad's farm because he was part of the family. And uh, he wasn't going to get uh, an inheritance until dad died. So what we better do is kill off dad, right? Then we can read the will get the inheritance, and we can go and have a life of our own. Yeah? So that's what we did. We killed off Dad. We did. As good as. Because yeah? we said to him, yeah, can I have my inheritance? You don't do this in a Middle Eastern village. You just don't. Now, if this father had been true to type, 
a Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern patriarch, he would have whacked this kid up the side of the head. Well and truly. And if the son had persisted in rebelling and, and you know, creating a fuss, he would have sent him down the road to the elders and they would have stoned him to death. Read Leviticus. Not a pretty picture. But guess what? This dad says, uh, okay, son. Okay, son. Dad's going to humiliate himself in front of the whole village by settling the will before he's dead and granting his younger son his inheritance. The older brother gets a double portion. The younger son gets his portion. Dad gets left with uh, the household in the village and that's about it. So, younger brother's got to get out of town quickly because he's shamed the family. And you know, he turned that land into cash as quickly as he could so he could get off and do his own thing. There's a problem. If a Jewish boy gives his inheritance or his possessions to Gentiles, he comes under a curse. The whole village curses him. They've got a ritual for it. So he knows that he's burning his bridges. He's not coming back here. Because if he tries to come back, as soon as the village elders spot him, yeah, they'll invoke the curse. They grab a big clay pot and they fill it full of, fill it full of, yeah, fill it full of uh, wheat, wheat and barley and other things, the, the, the fodder, the food of the village, and they smash it in front of him and they say to him, basically, you're banned. Don't show your face here again. And his name is struck off. He's nameless now. Father knows that's going to happen if the young guy comes back. Why do you think he's looking down the road? Why do you think he's so anxious to know what's happening to his son? He's no fool, this dad. He knows what's going to happen when this boy goes off to the Gentile Decapolis, a far country. It's probably Gerasa in Jordan, which is where one of the biggest Roman ruins still is, where there's the Temple of Athena and uh, other temples. It was a gathering place for Gentiles, temple prostitutes, all kinds of uh, rioters living available there. So you know the story. The guy went there and blew his money, yeah, and found himself eating with the pigs, and he had a decision to make. Even the servants at my father's place get to eat, and I've got nothing. I should go home. How's he going to avoid the shame? What's he going to do? What's his strategy? Do you know? You should. You've read it often enough. What's he going to do? Oh, that's, that's part of the strategy. What's he going to tell Dad? I have sinned against you 
and heaven and so on. Yeah? Exactly. Do you know where else that particular verse occurs in the Old Testament? Anyone? <clears throat> no, no, not no. The words the words are exactly repeated by Pharaoh to Moses when he's faking it. When he's faking it. Yeah. So this is the big strategy. We'll sling down a line about how remorseful we are and how uh, sorry we are. We'll win him over and we'll get a job as a hired hand. He wants to be a hired hand rather than a servant. Yeah? <clears throat> His intention is to pay back the debt. That's what he reckons. Yeah? So here's dad, here's dad, desperately worried, knowing that the boy's going to come back sooner or later because he's going to blow his money, yeah? and sees him coming. Now what's he worried about? He's worried that the elders are going to get him first. So what does he do? He runs. Do you know that Middle Eastern patriarchal dads do not run. They do not run. In order to run, he's got to lift his skirts and show his legs. And he's running down a narrow street in the village with his bare legs showing and everybody in the village can see the shame He's humiliating and shaming himself as he runs to his son. And he gets his son before he crosses the village threshold. That's it. That's it. And throws himself upon his son in the sight of the whole village because everyone's come out to see this guy running down the road which nobody ever does. No Middle Eastern patriarchal father would demean himself to such an extent. So the father takes the son's shame upon himself and covers his son's shame with his robe in front of everyone. Everyone can see and puts the ring on his son's finger. And kisses him. And now it's time for rejoicing. Now it's time for rejoicing, because there can be no going back. The, the village has no argument now. Public reconciliation has been made. The restoration has been done. The only one who's come badly out of this is actually the father because he's been publicly shamed. But he's willing to carry it for the sake of his son. 
So there's another celebration. What are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? What do you reckon? What are we celebrating? Yes, but who? 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 Who's the focus of the celebration? Ah, it's the Father. It's the Father. Yeah, it's the Father. We're celebrating the victory that the Father has won. Yeah? In order to save his son. Just like the Good Shepherd celebrated his prowess in saving the sheep, and just as the Good Woman celebrated her prowess in scouring the floor for the coin, the Father is celebrating his ability to restore the Son in a hopeless situation at great cost, at great cost. But he didn't mind. And so you know the rest of the story, how the celebration begins. And then we've got the older brother to deal with. <laughs> the, older, the older brother emerges from the shadows and he's really happy, isn't he? <laughs> he's really happy. <laughs> Crikey, got that loser back again. <laughs> I thought we got rid of him for good. Why would we celebrate? Gee, I've been slogging my guts out here all these years, haven't even taken a goat for myself, and here's this loser, and, we, and we're killing the fatted calf. So you see, there's another, there's another lost son as well. That's the elder brother. He's the law keeper. The law keeper is no closer to the father's heart than the rebellious one. He needs saving just as much. And that's the point that Jesus is making to these Pharisees who are standing there following the story with rapt attentiveness, understanding every single aspect of this story until they realise that they are the older brothers who are standing there while... The, the younger brothers, right, who've been lost, are being brought in. And basically, Jesus is saying, why aren't you celebrating with me at what's going on here? But the key to the story, you can see it, is that the father never gives up. What he does now, he leaves the celebration and goes outside to have a stand-up row with the older brother in front of the whole village that's gathered there uh, to celebrate the younger one's return. Shame upon shame upon shame he's willing to bear for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of restoration, for the sake of bringing the lost home. There is nothing, nothing this father would not do for you.
nothing. This father has already done everything, everything in his ability for you. And will never give up on you. Not, not for an instant. Does he even consider it as a possibility? Not happening. Doesn't matter if uh, you get lost in the wilderness and get scared. Doesn't matter if you're lost in the darkness and stumbling around, don't know which way to turn. Doesn't matter if you've, um, you know, gone down a wrong road, found yourself in a mess. It's okay to come home. It's okay to come home. Yeah. And that's where I've been for the last 12 months. Firstly, in the wilderness, uh, lost, full of fear and anxiety, cowering under the thorn bush, wondering how we were going to survive. See, in 2015, uh, I got sick, and then 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 I got sick again. Six times I had pneumonia in 2015. And in November of 2015, and we're at uh, the House of Prayer in Wellington, I got double pneumonia, would you believe? And I heard the Lord very clearly. In fact, I heard him say this in 2014, but didn't take any notice. Enter into rest. So now now I have no option. (laughs) Too sick to do anything. And uh, before we left Wellington, David gave me a copy of Mike Bickle's Song of Songs CDs and uh, Jill gave me a copy of Brian Simmons' book The Sacred Journey. Yeah? And those CDs and that book kept me alive. Kept me alive in 2015. Firstly, when I was terrified under the thorn bush wondering how we're going to pay our bills or whatever, how we're going to survive financially without any work or without any income. And then lost in the darkness, not knowing what to do next or what was going to happen next. Didn't know. Is there a future for us? Halfway through the year, Sheila had to go back to hospital for another major operation on her back. Will there be a future for us? Didn't seem like it. Seemed like just darkness. But uh, someone didn't give up, you see. And every day I'd open another page. You can only do a page a day. I'd open another page of the book, The Sacred Journey. (laughs) 
and the love of God would just penetrate my heart from the page of that book. It's just amazing. Yeah. Love never gives up, you see. Love never gives up. It's got 280 pages. <laughs> I finished the book at Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So, being lost in a far country and not knowing my way home, the Lord, the Lord actually brought us home. And here we are. Here we are. We've come to the oasis. You, you thought we'd come to minister to you, didn't you? <laughs> We've just been here drinking and drinking and drinking and resting. Because <sighs> it's home here. This is where the Lord lives. He lives here. He's made a permanent residence here, you know. Yeah. I don't know if he's got a hut down the back, has he, or what? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So, there is hope. More than hope. More than hope. Because it's not down to us. It's down to him. And he's not going to give up on you. Not in the slightest is he going to give up on you. Even when it seems like you're going to die under a thorn bush, or you're stumbling in the darkness and can't see your way ahead, or you seem to be a long way off and you don't know the way back, he's not going to give up on you. So if you feel like at all, that you've been stuck under a thorn bush in the wilderness or stumbling around in the darkness or a long way off somehow and don't know your way back, we'd be really pleased to pray with you. We really would. So if you felt that uh, that fingers you somehow and we could find a place to put you, We'd be, really, we'd be really glad to pray with you. Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. And it's higher than the mountains that I face. And it's stronger than the power of the grave. And it's constant in the trial and the change. Never gives up. Never gives up. Never gives up. And so we just we just bless you, folks that are not receiving prayer right now. We just pray a blessing for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance towards you and give you his peace and keep you safe in his arms. Yeah.